Our text for this morning is Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20 to 28. This is God's word. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Well, you probably didn't wake up this morning thinking, I'm so glad Jesus is my high priest. It may not have been the first thing on your mind. It probably wasn't. It's not something we often think about. But tomorrow it might be. In fact, I hope that it's something you think about more after this morning. Especially when you see how powerfully connected it is to your outlook on the future. Hebrews chapter 7 is all about giving you a solid ground for gospel-centered hope. And it relentlessly focuses on Christ's office as high priest. It relentlessly focuses on Jesus Christ, his person, and his ministry as our high priest. Hope is a confident, certain expectation of future good. And not just a future good that is slightly better than we could arrange for ourselves, but a future that is beyond our wildest dreams. Hope is future-oriented, but it also has strong effects for the present. Hope is described in Hebrews 6.19, as a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. A sure, steadfast anchor, something to keep us anchored. It's sure and it's steadfast. This is what these Hebrew Christians needed. These were Jewish Christians who had received the gospel of Jesus and they were suffering for it. They'd suffered personal loss Some of them had had been put in prison. Others had had their properties plundered or confiscated, either taken from them or completely looted, looted and plundered. They were being persecuted because of this new faith in Christ, and life was hard. They needed the steadfast and sure anchor of a future 
hope. And we do too. We do too. Life can be devastatingly hard and challenging and difficult. It can be painful and it can just be very difficult. All of us need to know this hope, this hope that grounds us, this hope that gives us courage to get up and face the day, this hope that gives us a joy to face the day with victory. So, This text that we're going to look at this morning, Hebrews 7, verses 20 to 28, show us four glorious truths that converge to enlarge and ground our hope. Those four truths are these. Number one, the Father's oath. Number two, the kind of person Jesus is. Number three, what Jesus has done in the past. And number four, what Jesus is doing now. So again, number one, the Father's oath. Number two, the kind of person Jesus is. Number three, what Jesus has done in the past. Number four, what Jesus is doing now. And they all have to do with Jesus Christ as our high priest. So let's let's take a look at these one at a time. And uh, and as as we get to the end of, of, of the message here, I want to come back to this idea of hope. Number one, The Father's oath to Jesus as our high priest. Verses 20 and 21. Our hope is invincible because it is built upon an oath from God the Father. And this oath is that Jesus will be our high priest forever. This oath is that he is our eternal high priest. Look at verses 20 and 21. It says, and it, speaking of this better hope that we have, was not introduced without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath. Excuse me, the the previous ones were made a priest without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath. By the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. God swears to something here. Hundreds of years before Jesus comes to earth as a man, the Father said to him, you, my son, are a priest forever. This is a quotation from Psalm 110, verse 4. Now, Why an oath? Why does God speak with such strong language? Why does he... Why does he promise with an oath? Why does he swear with an oath? Isn't God's word good enough? Why didn't the father simply say, son, you are a priest forever? Why did he say, I swear and I will not change my mind? You are a priest forever. Clearly, he's upping the ante. Usually when someone swears to do something, it's It's because they have previously broken a promise or not followed through on something they said they would do. When my son says, Daddy, I I swear I will do it this time. I will follow through this time. It's usually because I just got done telling him, you didn't follow through last time. So he says, Daddy, I swear I will this time. That's not why God swears. God doesn't swear in order to try to convince us that he'll actually follow through with something because he didn't last time. No, God always follows through on his word. 
Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17 tells us why God swears with an oath. And it has to do with the importance of what he's swearing to do or what he's promising. And it also has to do with giving us strong encouragement to hope and trust. Here's what Hebrews 6, 17 says. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. And then it goes on to say, verse 18 says, so that by two unchangeable things, in that it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. God swore with an oath, number one, to show us the unchangeable character of his purpose, that this purpose of his is unchangeable. It is fixed. It is something that is so massive, so important, it's fixed, it's unchangeable. And because he wanted, he desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise so that we would have strong reason to be encouraged to lay hold of the hope that he's promised us. You see, we live in a world full of liars. Right? The whole human race is a race of liars. And don't, we, we don't need to just look around at other people. We ourselves have lied. We, we've lied to other people. We've said we were going to do something and not followed through. We've, we've promised to do something and we've broken promises. And, and we've all been lied to by other people. We've all been told by other people, I'm going to do this. And they didn't follow through. We've all had promises broken to us. And so to give strong encouragement, God swears with an oath. It's like God wants, God accommodates himself to the reality that we, we experience human undependability. And so he says, I swear, and I will not change my mind. Something I just noticed that I, I had not noticed in this passage before is notice who the father swears to. He doesn't swear to us. He swears to the Son. He swears to Jesus. He he makes this oath to the Son. It's almost like we are allowed to be a fly on the wall in this interaction between the Father and the Son. The oath is from the Father to the Son where he appoints the Son to be a priest forever. And remember, he, he promises this for our encouragement but also to show the unchangeable character of his purpose. It's like he's saying to the son, we are going to do this. We, this, this purpose of mine is fixed. It's unchangeable. You're going to be a priest and you are going to save our people to the uttermost. You're a priest forever. And when Jesus comes to the earth, He clearly has this self-awareness of his priestly office. Numerous examples could be drawn out, but let me just let me just give you one. John chapter 17 is is called is often called the high priestly prayer of Christ. It's just before he's 
to be betrayed and crucified, and he is praying to the Father. He's, he's, he's praying, he's interceding for his disciples, the, the, the ones that were following him at that time, but there's also evidence in that prayer that he's praying for all of those who would ever believe in him through their testimony. He's praying for you and I, and it's amazing. And in, in, in verse, verse 12, here's what Jesus says. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, of course, referring to Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus was made a high priest by oath, and he has and is fulfilling that oath, and he will. He will not fail in his high priestly ministry. And this is a strong anchor for our hope. Number two, our hope is to be, be strengthened and encouraged in who Jesus, our high priest, is, in his person, in his character. We see in verse 26, describes Jesus in stunning ways. Verse 26 says this, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. I love that opening phrase. It was fitting that we should have such a high priest. I love that. It's fitting. It is fitting, or it was fitting. It's, it's as though the author's saying, it's ju- he's just the high priest that we need. It's fitting that we should have a high priest like this. Given the kind of people we are, we need a high priest like this. Now, Hebrews does an amazing job of doing doing two things. It shows us in glorious ways how Jesus, according to his human nature, was made like us in every single way. In fact, that's almost a direct phrase from Hebrews 2. He was made like us in every way so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in making propitiation for our sins. So he's made like us in every way. Hebrews 4 says he was tempted like us in every way way yet without sin. So according to his human nature, he was made fully human. He knew what it was like to put his feet on the earth and walk on this planet among sinners and experience what it was like to be a human fully. And yet at the same time, the book of Hebrews also describes Jesus in ways where it's very clear he is not a mere man. He is unlike us. And it's very obvious why. He is not only fully human, but he is also fully the uncreated God who's always existed. And that's what we see here. In in, in verse 26, it shows us that our high priest, who's made like us in every way according to his human nature, but he's, he's God. And it shows us how Jesus is unlike us. And it's good news. We need a high priest like this. 
Let's go through the way that Jesus, our high priest, is described. Jesus, our high priest, is holy. He is holy. He is uniquely God's holy one. He is set apart to God and for God's service. He is holy, whereas you and I, in and of ourselves, we are unholy. We are ungodly. We are not, in and of ourselves, are not set apart for God's purposes. And we need a high priest who's holy. Jesus, our high priest, is holy. Next it says he is innocent. Jesus, our high priest, is innocent. Literally, it means he is without evil. Jesus is completely without evil. Whereas you and I in ourselves and according to nature, we are evil in our motives and actions. Remember when Jesus talking to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount about prayer, he says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He says, you, you, you're evil, and you know how to give good things to your children. Of course, this isn't, this isn't somehow denying the fact that we are made righteous in God's sight with the very righteousness of Christ. It just means in and of ourselves we are, according to nature, we are evil and unholy. Jesus, though, is innocent, perfectly innocent, without stain of sin at all. He is good through and through. He is innocent. He is without guilt. Next, it says, Jesus, our high priest, is unstained. The high priest in the Old Testament had to be completely clean externally, right? Ceremonially. They had to, they had to go through the rituals to be clean externally, Jesus is unstained, perfectly clean, stainless internally. While all human beings are depraved because of sin. I mean, sin has affected every part of us. It's corrupted us to the core. Jesus walked the earth for 33 years, but was completely immune to the stain of sin. And because Jesus is described as holy, innocent, unstained, he is separated from sinners, it says. Though he put on flesh in his incarnation for our sake, he is separate in his person and character from sinful human nature. He is separated from sinners. Finally, Jesus, our high priest, is described as exalted above the heavens. This speaks of the the triumph of Christ's resurrection, of his ascension, of his glorification, of his present enthronement at God's right hand. Remember back from Hebrews chapter 1 verse 13, when the Father speaks to the Son and says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Quoting Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus is not only our high priest, but he is a high priest who is also our king and our Lord, who is exalted above the heavens. 
This is what our high priest is like. I I mean, going back to chapter 2, when it describes our high priest as merciful and faithful, made like us in every way. Yes, he is that. But let's not forget, he's holy, unstained, innocent, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens as well. Your hope and your trust in Christ will be limited by what you know of him. Think about this. Would, would you entrust, would you trust a complete stranger? If, to, would, you tr- would you give $10,000 to a complete stranger and trust them by giving them your bank account information that they would go put it in the bank for you? Well, you'd be foolish to do that. Would you, if you scarcely knew somebody, do that? Here's $10,000. Here's my bank account information. Please go deposit it for me. No, you wouldn't do that. What about if you knew somebody, but you knew that they were not trustworthy? Of course not. But what if it was your best friend that you knew inside and out, and they had impeccable character? Well, yeah, you trust them. Jesus the Holy One who is innocent and unstained and separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He is trustworthy. He is a strong anchor for our hope. Number three, let your hope be encouraged in what Jesus, our high priest, has done what he has done in the past. This is something that's done. Verse 27 says, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus, our high priest, self-consciously offered up himself. He, the priest who comes with a sacrifice, under the Old Testament, Old Covenant system, the priest would come with a sacrifice, an unblemished lamb. Jesus, our high priest, came as the sacrifice and offered up himself as the sacrifice. In John chapter 10, Jesus says these epic words. I love these words from Christ. He says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I receive from my Father. And he does this. Notice verse, again, verse 27, right? Just, just like the, the Old Testament priests, they would offer sacrifices for the people. Jesus offers up himself for the people or for, him, for, for his people. Now, if you have trusted in Christ, We must understand this on a personal level and not just say, yes, he died for his people or he died for the sins of the world or 
kind of just this abstract view of the person and work of Jesus. But no, we must make this personal for ourselves. We must, we must know the precious truth that the Apostle Paul knew when he uttered these sweet words in Galatians 2.20 when he says, He loved me and gave himself for me. He loved me and he gave himself for me. But I think the most important phrase, and that, that, that's precious beyond words, right? He offered up himself. But I, I think the most important phrase in verse 27 are the words, once for all, breathtakingly glorious. It's, it's final. Jesus is not like the former high priest whose work was never completed, right? Their work was never done. In the opening words of the book of Hebrews, it says about Jesus, just this this glorious opening, the, the glorious opening verses of Hebrews, one thing that it says is, after making purification for sins, he sat down. Jesus sat down. The old covenant priests never sat down. Their work was never completed. Every day they would get up and have a day full of bloody sacrifices. And it never made an end of sin. But Jesus, by offering up himself once for all, has put away all the sins for all of his people for all time. For all time. Once for all. It's done. There are no more sacrifices for sin. And oh, for those who have a hope on this foundation, there is such joy. There is such joy. I mean, if you know yourself like I know myself, I need to know he's put away sin once for all on my behalf. Because otherwise I would be crushed. Psalm 32, 1 and 2. What joy. It says this. This is King David who wrote this. But Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 4. How blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. This is true gospel joy founded on an unshakable hope. William Tyndale, who before he was burned at the stake, translated most of the Bible from its original languages into English. And he's burned at the stake for doing that. Listen to what he says about the joy of the gospel. He says the word gospel signifies good, merry, 
glad and joyful tidings that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing, dance, and leap for joy. There is no other sacrifice for sins. There's no other sacrifice that's needed. He put away sins once for all. And that's why if you are in Christ, there is therefore now, or there's, there's not now or ever condemnation for you. Because Christ bore it and took it for you. Jesus took it and he took it all and you are free and forgiven forever in Christ. Jesus said, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. And he's, he's in the context of John 8 where he says that, it's talking about sin. This is true, glorious, Wonderful, joy-producing, hope-filling freedom. Jesus said, his final words in the Gospel of John, his final words on the cross, I should say, he said, it is finished. And it is. Christ's finished work on the cross, what an anchor for our hope. Number four, Our hope is to be enlarged in what Jesus, our high priest, is presently doing right now. Right now. What is he doing? Verses 23 to 25. Our hope is invincible because of the permanent and perpetual intercession of Jesus, our high priest. Here's what verses 23 to 25 say. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus holds his priesthood permanently, it says. He continues forever. He always lives to make intercession. These are such strong phrases meant to be the solid foundation under us. There's a sense of permanence to his intercessory work. It goes on forever. And get this, it goes on without break. When, when you intercede, I mean, if you truly intercede for someone in prayer, that's work. Whether it's for your children or your spouse or a friend or someone, a coworker. I mean, when you intercede for someone, that is work. And if you've ever done that, I mean, you get... Don't, you're tired emotionally, sometimes even physically. It can be exhausting. Jesus' intercessory ministry goes on without break. He always lives to make intercession. 
Jesus' ministry as high priest is one of permanent, perpetual intercession. He stands before God the Father on your behalf, on my behalf. And notice who, who Jesus makes intercession for. It's not for everyone in the world. It's not for everyone in the world. It's for those who draw near to God through him. It's for those that come to God through Christ. He intercedes for them. And I I think this drawing near, although I certainly think we can apply it to drawing near to God day after day after day, just as believers, I think what is particularly in view is the drawing near to God through Christ for salvation. Jesus always lives to intercede for them who have come to God through him for salvation. Remember, Jesus came to reconcile us to God. Jesus came to bring us to God, 1 Peter 3.18. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, God the Father, but by me. And what is Jesus able to do for those who draw near? Beloved, this is amazing. He is able to save to the uttermost. Uttermost is such an amazing word. It means to, it means to save completely or forever. In other words, he saves us, he keeps us saved, and he will complete our salvation for eternity and you guys, this is, this is good news because if Jesus did 90% and left the rest up to me, I would blow it. If he did 95%, 99%, even 99.99999%, that small little bit that's left up to me, I'd blow it. And you would too. I'd be lost. He is able, he is able, strong enough, powerful enough, sufficient enough to save to the uttermost forever. And we need this kind of high priest. We need a high priest like this who saves to the uttermost because we still sin. We need a high priest like this because we suffer. And we need a high priest like this because the devil hates us and would drag us to hell if he could. I mean, think about this, right? Just think about these three things. We need a high priest who always intercedes for us because we still sin. Real Christians don't want to sin, and they're not going around trying to sin. They're not looking for opportunities where they can sin, right? But we do still sin. We sin. On our best days, in the best portion of our best days, the best hour or 15 minutes in our best days, we still sin. And if Jesus was not perpetually interceding for us, representing us to the Father, we would be lost. 1 John 2, 1 says, I write these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate With the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have one right there at the Father's side. Our advocate, Jesus Christ. 
We need a high priest who intercedes for us perpetually and continually because we suffer. Where do we go when we suffer? Right? Well, we should go to God our Father through Jesus Christ, our high priest, who intercedes for us. Right? I mean, with, with our glorious high priest interceding for us, the Father welcomes us to himself. He says, come close. I love you. When we go through hardships and life is daunting and we fear we might lose hold of God, we need to be assured that he will never lose hold of us. We sang the hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast, the line, I love this line, I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He must. And he does. He is able to save to the uttermost. And we need a high priest like this because the devil seeks to devour our faith. The main weapon he uses is accusation and condemnation. Right? Romans 8, 33 and 34 says, Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Right? Who's the one that brings a charge against God's elect, God's people? It's the devil. But God justifies. Who's to condemn? Well, the devil hurls condemning accusations at us all the time. He is always before God's throne accusing us to God. Who is to condemn? Romans 8, 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who's at the right hand of God the Father who indeed is interceding for us. Because of our high priest, the devil will not be able to devour our faith. He'll try, but he won't be able to. One of my favorite Martin Luther quotes is Reformation Day this past week. One of my favorite Martin Luther quotes. I love this, and we need to learn to fight like this. In fact, maybe even just taking this and making it our own. Listen to what he says. When the devil throws our sins up and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. We ought to say this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. What an anchor for our hope. Well, how can this hope be yours? How can you know it? I mean, truly know it. I I think what we tend to do when, when talking about faith or hope or something like that we tend to look inward to see if it resides in us. We look in for hope. And I think that's all wrong. 
Martin Luther said the essence of our sinful nature and of unbelief is an inward curve where we look inside us for the resources we seek. We turn in on ourselves. The certainty of these things lie outside of us, right? This passage is relentlessly pointing us away from us and outside of us to God and his oath and to Jesus and who he is and what he's done and what he's doing now, right? It turns us upward and, excuse me, outward and upward. It lies in God's sure word of oath. It lies in the perfection of Christ's person and character. Our hope lies in the finished once for all sacrifice for us that can never be undone. Our hope lies in the perpetual, permanent, eternal intercession of Christ for us. The words we sang from the hymn before the throne. Upward I look and see him. Speaking of Christ, our high priest. I see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Don't look in for hope. Look up. Look up. Fix your gaze on Jesus. Fix your hope on Christ, your high priest. Fix your gaze on him and let your hope rise. Keep fixing your hope on Jesus, your high priest, and let your hope be strengthened. A sure and steadfast hope which is able to anchor your soul.